You know, I call it spaghetti pie, but I found out, like, a couple days ago that the word pie is actually supposed to be pronounced P. So, yeah, take that wherever you want to go. officially start this series off with a story based in 4th and 5th century Alexandria. Because who doesn't love hearing about ancient Greek and Roman civilization? Well, I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily fun to be a woman at the time. And once the Dark Ages came, soon after the fall of the Roman Empire, you may not have wanted to be a mathematician. Coincidentally, today's tale is about someone who was both of these things. Her name? Hypatia. In the territory that is modern-day Egypt, Alexander the Great had started building a sanctuary fit to be called a hub of the world's knowledge. The city of Alexandria was home to leading scholars of all backgrounds, one of whom was a mathematician by the name of Theon. And no, that's not Theon Greyjoy of... Well, you know, I... You know what? Copyright issues. I don't know. I might get in trouble for that. Anyways, no. This Theon was a professor at what we now call the University of Alexandria, but should technically be called the Museum. In the year 355, Theon's only daughter was born, Hypatia. Theon of Alexandria instilled in his daughter an understanding and appreciation for philosophy, mathematics, and other sciences. Thanks to her dad's high standing in their society, Hypatia grew up while getting the same education that boys her age did. At some point in the 380s, Hypatia took over her father's role in the museum and started teaching lessons on philosophy, mathematics, and occasionally astronomy. Now, keep in mind that the study of mathematics began as an all-encompassing field, which we've ended up categorizing into philosophy, logic, physics, arithmetic, geometry, and so on. And as you may come to find out, during Hypatia's lifetime, math and astronomy were linked together quite tightly. While she was less of a researcher and more of a teacher, Hypatia was nonetheless a mathematician who centered both her teachings and her lifestyle around Neoplatonism, which we'll look into that more later on in the episode. Reportedly, she was a charismatic educator whose pupils were mostly Christians, and everybody, yes, even all the Christian students, appreciated her lessons on Neoplatonism mostly because this philosophy could be applied in your life no matter what religion you practiced. You could be a Christian, a Jew, a pagan, you name it. I find it fascinating, I mean, considering the time period, that all of her students were men. And it's truly impressive, again, when considering the time period we're talking about here, that Hypatia was so well-revered that students traveled from distant lands to come listen to her lessons. 
As time went on, a lot of her students ended up in high-ranking positions, and or positions of great importance. So Hypatia eventually had pretty powerful, influential friends. Now, this is a key aspect of our story. But before we keep traveling down the timeline of Hypatia's life, I think it's important that we discuss the very philosophy that this woman based her entire existence on. So, what is Neoplatonism? In short, it's a branch of Platonic thought that a follower of Plato, named Platonus, created. To quote Dr. Michael Deacon of Monash University, Neoplatonic thought contained a strand that is strongly mathematical, and which indeed makes mathematics a profoundly sacred pursuit. How so? Well, let's consider the fundamentals of Neoplatonism. As Platonus first conjectured, we could divide consciousness into three categories, or as I see it, beings. The purest and most sought-after level of existence, or if we want to be quite loose with our wording, the top dog or the big mamajama is called the one. Instead of going completely in-depth and getting a little existential, I'll simply say that all reality emerges from this. Below the one, we have the intellect. And this would be the absolute highest order of reality that the human mind can access. As the YouTuber Quill and Ink History puts it, the intellect bears responsibility for the organization of the material world. And Finally, at the bottom of this chain lies the soul. This is the only level that is able to interact with the material world, so our physical surroundings as we know them. In case you haven't already guessed, the overarching theory of Neoplatonism is that the greater soul, or the one, has been fragmented into human souls, the soul, that have forgotten, strayed away from, and or lost their origin in the material world. If you adopt and stick to higher level virtues, this will help the soul to reconnect to the one. Following this ideology, one of the things that many Neoplatonists, including Hypatia, committed themselves to was, yep, you guessed it, sexual chastity. This fact isn't necessarily important to our story of Hypatia, but I need you to keep this in mind when we discuss modern depictions of her life. Before we dive back into our story of Hypatia, I must mention one more aspect involved in the history of Neoplatonism that will be relevant later on. While Plotinus is credited as the original developer of this philosophy, ancient thinkers like Porphyry, and Iamblichus also became key figures in the spread of Neoplatonism. To me, things started getting shaky with Porphyry, as the notion of the One became equated with the notion of a supreme god. That's a quote. <laughs> and lines between the intellect and the soul began to blur. Things slid even further onto this slippery slope once people began following Iamblichus, because he went even further than his teacher Porphyry had with growing religious interpretations of Neoplatonism. Iamblichus 
placed importance on religious rites and rituals for the sake of ensuring that a person's soul was pure and for the sake of reconnecting with the one. Make sure that you at least remember the influence that Iamblichus had on the history of Neoplatonism. It'll come up eventually. Even though Hypatia herself did not, I mean at all, rely on his interpretation of the philosophy. That's important. Remember that. Turning our attention back to Hypatia, we can safely, thanks to the historian and researcher Maria Zizelska, I cannot say her name, I'm so sorry, um, we can safely support notions of Hypatia's wisdom, ethical principles, virtue, dignity, and virginity. Her students and followers thought of her as both a philosophical and spiritual teacher. In fact, some even saw her as divine. Salvation and the purity of her soul were very important to Hypatia. But this salvation wasn't that which we'd use in the religious sense of the word. In other words, the type of salvation that we're talking about here is non-confessional. Rather, Hypatia was ensuring salvation in the sense of philosophical contemplation, bodily purity, and mastering moral virtues. I feel, again, that I need to share the YouTuber Quill and Ink History's words describing Hypatia as both a teacher and a student of philosophy. She encouraged her students to view philosophy as the divine mystery and to view mathematics and astronomy as tools to help them go beyond the material world and into the area where there is only mystical experience. Is that or is that not one of the most powerful things you've ever heard? It's no wonder, to me at least, that Hypatia has come to symbolize both wisdom and beauty from ancient Greece. However, the scholar Mary W. Gray points this out in the best way possible. While we have many portraits, and I use the term loosely, of Hypatia, we don't actually know what she looked like. But, to quote Gray, do we ask what Euclid looked like? While I have, indeed, wondered what Euclid looks like, and while I do understand that it's only natural that we, as humans, feel curious as to what someone famous or infamous from history looked like, I think that it's important for us all to understand that whether or not Hypatia was a conventionally attractive woman does not increase nor decrease the value that we can place on her life's work. The fact of the matter is that she was a well-respected and influential scientist and educator in a place and time where women were rarely able to be such things. And though Hypatia was not history's first female mathematician, she is the first of whom that we have adequate evidence of her success. And the reason why I point all of this out is because I have a few issues with the creative liberties that many storytellers have taken in their portrayals of Hypatia. I won't go on much further into this, but I'll offer some of my comments on Alejandro Amenabar's film. I'm so sorry, I'm mispronouncing his name as well. Um, about Hypatia called Agora. 
I haven't been able to watch the movie in full yet, so I can't be too harsh of a critic. And on top of that, I want everybody to understand that I do really appreciate the artistry and the effort that was put into this film, let alone the desire that Aminabar's team had to tell this story. I love that they wanted to make the tale inviting and accessible for people who love movies, like myself. But anyway, Agora does what many other sources do to retelling Hypatia's story, and that is cast Hypatia to be a beautiful young woman with romantic love interests. Specifically, in the case of this film, we see the brilliant and stunning Rachel Wise play in the leading role. Even though I'm sure that Wise does a magnificent job in the film, Agora misinforms its audience on the actual circumstances of Hypatia's death. In line with the most accurate estimate that we have of when Hypatia was born, again, thanks to Maria Zelska, we know that the ancient mathematician was around the age of 60 when she was brutally murdered. And this is the moment in Hypatia's story where I am going to leave you for today. I'm sorry to stop here, but I want you to be sitting on the edge of your seats, ready and excited for us to get back to our story again soon. In the meantime, I hope you wait for the next episode of Spaghetti Pie before you go digging for all the details on our heroine and her legacy. I promise that it will be worth the wait, but I understand the eagerness and impatience that we can, all can get in situations like these. And that's one of the reasons why I will be posting the references I used for research. If you go to the website, spaghellipie.wordpress.com, you'll find a full transcript of today's episode, alongside images that go along with the story so far. And, as I mentioned, a list of references on these episode notes. While I'd rather you not go and learn the full story of Hypatia while I write and record part two of this, if you simply have to hear more about her, I recommend watching the TED-Ed video lecture on her. It's something I came across one time on my YouTube feed, and it's actually what initially pointed me in the direction of telling this story in my podcast. By no means am I being paid to expose you to that video or the TED-Ed entity. I mean, that would be great, but, um, anyway, I'll provide a link to the video at the very bottom of my references list. That way you'll have to go looking for it in order to spoil yourself. No matter what, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this first half of my story. And of course, I hope that you return to hear even more in the coming days and weeks. As always, feel free to visit the website or email me at spaghellipie at gmail.com. Until next time, stay you, sweet friend.
theme song for Spaghetti Pie is Pluck It Up by Dan Heenig. Special thanks to my advisor, Dr. Patrick Shipman, and my sister, Alex, for creating the cover art for this podcast. Mm-hmm.